Welcome to another episode of Search News You Can Use with me, Dr. Marie Haynes. It's been three weeks since my last podcast episode, so I'm really, really excited to get this information to you. I've been traveling, which uh, there's a running joke that whenever I travel, Google tends to do a big update. Uh, I don't think there was a massive update. There was a little one while I was gone, uh, but there goes our theory that Google is basing all of their uh, updates on my travel schedule. I don't think I ever fully believed that to, to begin with. Um, but I was at PubCon Vegas and also Search Love in London. It was my first time at uh, London Search Love and it was fantastic. PubCon was really, really good as well. Um, PubCon, I had my entire team with me. So we had eight of us. We had a really, really good time exploring Vegas, uh, seeing the, tr- uh, the strip, um, had a great time on Fremont Street. Just uh, Vegas is quite different than Ottawa where we live. Uh, so it was a, a blast. In this podcast episode, I'm going to share with you a bunch of things that we learned at PubCon and also SearchLove. Um, I'm going to go over some Google announcements that uh, I didn't cover uh, because I haven't been doing uh, podcast episodes for the last couple of weeks. And um, also, I'm going to go into great detail about Gary Isha's podcast or a podcast a Q&A with Jennifer Slegg at PubCon. This was one of the best Google Q&As that I've been in. Uh, we wrote a big blog post about it on our website, uh, which is pretty easy to find. If you just search for Q&A with Gary Ish, you'll, uh, you'll see it there. And uh, we've given everything that Gary said in as close as we can to being verbatim, uh, and then also our thoughts on that. And I'm going to expand on some of those those thoughts in this podcast episode. So hopefully you'll get some uh, uh, some information from that that is is able to help you. So let's start off with some Google announcements that you may or may not be aware of. Uh, the first thing is that Google has updated uh, some information on their user agent string. Uh, Uh, This is going to sound kind of complicated to most people. So what we really need to know here is that when you see Googlebot crawling your site, you should now see which Chrome version Googlebot is using. So for uh, quite a long time, Googlebot was stuck on an old version of Chrome, and it's almost evergreen now. Uh, As a new version of Chrome comes out, then Googlebot uh, is up to date with that. And that's important for sites that are relying on new technologies. If you use JavaScript uh, framework that is, um, you know, just a little bit uh, out there and maybe Google has had trouble crawling some of your JavaScript in the past, uh, cr- the new Googlebot, uh, now that it's um, uh, evergreen, really should be able to do that. So I'm going to read from Google's blog post on this uh, about the new evergreen Googlebot and its user agent. It says, in December... We will start periodically updating the above user agent strings to reflect the version of Chrome used in Googlebot. Um, uh, For example, instead of seeing, uh, it used to be, you know, w.x.y.z, you'll see something similar to 76... 0.3809.100. This is the version number of the version of Chrome that that Googlebot is crawling with. So um, for those of you who are kind of on the cutting edge in terms of using uh, fancy things on your website, this is something really to pay attention to. Um, Most of us, this really shouldn't matter. Uh, Google actually says in their blog post that this change should not affect most websites unless you're looking for a very 
specific user agent. Um, some common issues that Google saw when evaluating this change. Uh, number one, pages that present an error message instead of normal page contents. For example, a page may assume Googlebot is a user with an ad blocker and accidentally prevent it from accessing page contents. Um, and then another is pages that are redirected to a roboted or uh, a no-index document. Um, I know this all is a kind of confusing way to start off podcast, uh, and I think it's important for some of you. Um, for most of our websites, though, we really don't need to worry about this change. A new thing that Google launched as well is a new change of address tool in new Search Console. Um, we've had this in old Search Console, but they've changed the interface uh, somewhat, and uh, they're actually trying to walk sites through a site change. So if you have changed your site um, in terms of you've migrated to a new domain, something like that, uh, then Google in Search Console should be walking you through this now. They have some very specific advice on when not to use the change of address tool. And I'm going to go through these because a lot of sites, I see sites that do this. One is if you change from HTTP to HTTPS. Uh, this is technically a site move, but it's not something that... Um, most sites really need to, uh, well, any site really needs to use the change of address tool, tool for. Google will figure that out. Um, similarly, if you're moving pages from one location in your site to another location, like a new directory, that's not a change of address. Uh, if you're moving from www to non-www, that's similar to the HTTPS change. Um, and if you're making changes, your URL stays the same, but maybe you're using a new host or a new CDN, that's not a change of address either. Um, so I'm looking forward to actually playing around with the change of address tool. Uh, but um, I, I do see a lot of people use it when they really shouldn't <laughs> be using it. Uh, let's talk about algorithm updates. So uh, I mentioned in the uh, intro that... Uh, um, you know, Google often updates while I'm traveling, uh, and I think this is just more irony than anything else. Um, and so this last stint of travel that I had, there was some type of an update, I'd say, between October 14th to October 19th. There was a little bit of a blip seen in some of the algo checker tools like MozCast, things like that. Uh, Barry Schwartz had an article about it, uh, that some people are seeing changes. When we looked at our own client data, we have a number of clients mostly up, although some are down, with very, very slight changes around October 14th. Uh, but there really wasn't anything significant enough for us to say, ooh, this is a crazy big algorithm update. I think personally that what Google is doing is just making some tweaks to how they assess quality. And, uh, you know, so if your site was affected by the September 24th, core update, which was the last big core update we've had, um, there's a good chance you've seen a, a different change in traffic in mid-October as well. Um, I did see some black hat SEOs tweeting uh, about some significant changes in their sites. Uh, one that uh, I follow on Twitter uh, commented that um, they're seeing a number of PBN sites actually ranking really well in their SERPs. Uh, I haven't experienced that personally, so uh, I'm not uh, here to say let's all go create some PBNs and start ranking well. Um, you know, Google will get on top of that. And I think if you are using private blog networks to create 
create links in order to convince Google that your website is, you know, the best of its kind, then you're treading on thin ice. I, I know there are people who uh, still get away with it. I tweeted something um, this morning about uh, how you know, Google's getting better and better at finding paid links and uh, or PBNs. And uh, Charles Float, uh, he won't mind me saying this, he replied to me saying, laughs in links. <laughs> um, you know what? And that's that's cool. If you are into black hat stuff, most of it is not illegal. It's not immoral. Most of the stuff that people are doing, creating links with PBNs, uh, but it's also not recommended because, um, you know, a penalty can devastate your website. And uh, once you get a penalty, it's very challenging to know, you know, if you've been dabbling in many different uh, linking uh, types of tactics, it's going to be hard to know which one Google's onto. And so I would not recommend using PBNs unless you're trying to experiment with a site that you know you could just lose at any minute. Um, and uh, and move on from that. I suppose there are some of you who want to do that. So we're going to keep an eye on algorithm updates for you over the next while. I want to pay more attention to this October 14th to 19th-ish update uh, over uh, the next couple of weeks or so to see if maybe it's something bigger than uh, than we thought. But um, stay tuned. We'll uh, We'll see what happens. It's been a little while. It's been like a month now since we've had a big core update. So um, things could be coming. Historically, uh, the fall is when Google does a lot of um, updates. We've seen a lot of link-related updates in October uh, in the past. And so uh, it wouldn't surprise me if what we just saw was related to links. I think we need to do a bit more investigation, though, before we can say that uh, conclusively. Um, Google tweeted that they had another brief indexing issue uh, at Google this past week. October 16th, they had some slight delays in indexing fresh content. Uh, and then they tweeted at 8.24 p.m. Eastern time on October 16th that this had been fixed. So if your traffic was down on October 16th and it only lasted for one day and your site relies on fresh content, so maybe you're a news site, then there's a good chance that uh, this was a, an issue on Google's side. Uh, and that should be fixed by now. It was an interesting thing uh, that Gary Ish said in PubCon was that uh, in April of this year, or was it last year? I think it was this year, uh, Google lost a, a huge chunk of their index. Uh, and that was, remember we had these issues with... Um, with Google not indexing new content. Uh, and there was actually, it sounded like a perfect storm of a number of things that went wrong at Google, and they actually lost a huge chunk of the index, which is kind of scary. Looks like they've recovered all that now. Um, and I don't think this most recent indexing uh, snafu is something that's going to cause major issues to, uh, to any sites, um, but we'll see. It's possible. Um, Google Assistant, there is new structured data that you can add uh, to specifically appear on Google Assistant. Um, and as people get more and more involved in using, relying on voice search, this is going to be important. Right now, I still feel like most of the voice searches I do are either, you know, uh, hey, G, what is this? Uh, this is our code in our house when we don't want to say uh, the G word because otherwise it'll wake up all our Google homes. Uh, hey, G, what is what song is this? Or... 
who sings the song that goes blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, Google's pretty good at that. Uh, but they're going to be getting better at actually coming up with answers for things. Um, and so if you have, the, there's a list we've put in newsletter um, uh, of certain types of content that can be marked up with schema uh, to appear potentially in Google Assistant. And these include podcasts, recipes, news, how-to guides, and also FAQs. Uh, I have not personally experimented with this, but it is something that I do want to do in the future. Um, And I do think we should not be ignoring Google Assistant and also voice. Uh, It's the way that Google wants to go. And a lot of people are probably going to be uh, searching for more voice content as Google gets better and better at surfacing good answers for people. Um, here's an interesting uh, tip from PubCon. A couple of my team uh, went to a talk with, uh, it was Eric Enge and also Bill Hunt, um, gave a really, really good talk. They were talking a lot about featured snippets. And uh, they've put together a, a little bit of information from this talk um, on Bill and Eric's thoughts on the the current status of featured snippets. And I say the current status because what we used to teach for featured snippets, you know, a year ago, or I think two years ago, two plus years ago, maybe even three, was when I, uh, my very first long episode of my newsletter uh, talks about winning featured snippets. And some of these things are true in there, but the algorithm has really evolved since then. So what Bill and Eric found are that the most dominant type of pages that you're going to see in a featured snippet are informational pages. It was really interesting because at PubCon, uh, somebody from Bing actually mentioned that uh, they do not want to include transactional content in featured snippets. Uh, I don't know if Bing actually calls them featured snippets, but those uh, answer boxes that Bing provides, they don't want to include any transactional content. Now, we feel like we've seen transactional content in Google featured snippets, uh, but I'm betting that they don't want to do that. And what I mean by transactional content is, um, you know, something that says, uh, if you're trying to answer the question, what is X? And your answer that's in the featured snippet says, you can buy X at our company Uh, along with a call to action, then you're probably not likely to win a featured snippet if this is what Google is pulling from your page. The thing I find most interesting about that, though, is that Google and Bing um, can very easily determine whether a page is transactional. And uh, we're going to be paying closer attention to this because we really feel like um, this is a factor in some of the medical sites that have seen drops with core algorithm updates. Uh, If Google can determine that you're talking on a medical topic and also you're selling uh, this product that is potentially controversial, um, maybe you should not be completely trusted unless you're an extremely authoritative brand already. So something to keep in mind. Going back to featured snippets, um, content in paragraph form tends to do the best. Uh, You can, I mean, we see featured snippets that are lists and tables. And our general advice is if Google is currently uh, presenting a list in a featured snippet that you want to win, it makes sense to put your content in the form of a list. Uh, But you can play around with trying to use paragraphs as well. Um, Featured snippets are mostly awarded to sites with a domain authority of 70 or higher. So a little caveat here, whenever we talk about domain authority, that is a Moz metric where Moz is trying to uh, do the best they can to replicate PageRank. 
Google does not use domain authority from Moz. They have their whole own system, uh, but both of them rely heavily on links. And um, so a site that has a DA70 is usually an authoritative site. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't win a featured snippet if you have less domain authority than 70. But if the site that currently is winning the featured snippet is a highly authoritative website, it may be challenging for you to steal it back from them. Um, we have several featured snippets for mariehaines.com, and I'm positive we are, I haven't looked at my DA in a long time, but we're, we're nowhere near 70, I'm sure. So, uh, so don't let that scare you off unless the, the featured snippet scene is currently being dominated by uh, massive authorities. Um, most of you have heard me give this tip before, but if you want to see if you're next in line for a featured snippet, then um, let's say that CNN.com currently wins this snippet for whatever keyword you're trying to rank for. Uh, put that keyword into Google minus site colon cnn.com and now you'll see uh, who would be next to get the featured snippet um, and you can experiment uh, by looking at what they do um, that's different than cnn or different than on your site uh, so that's a, a cool little tip um Another thing too that came out of PubCon was that uh, Google said that they optimize your snippets for clicks. Now this caused some controversy when I tweeted this. Uh, what Gary Ish said was that um, when Google uh, is trying to figure out what to use as your 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 description in the snippet. Uh, so most of us look at that as a meta description. Uh, and if you write in the meta description, there's a good chance that that's what people are going to see in the Google results under your uh, URL. They'll see your meta description. If Google rewrites your meta description, it's because they actually feel uh, that this is better for enticing people to click. Um, and what they'll do is, uh, you know, let's say my search is about a particular thing that's on your page, but maybe it's like, like six paragraphs down, um, Google might extract information from that paragraph to show in the snippet uh, to make it basically to say, hey, this page has got the information you're looking for. So, um, you know, if Google is rewriting your snippets, then uh, there could be reason for that. And I think we should all be paying attention to that. Let's move on to some other tips from PubCon. Uh, I did a, a link building day with Ann Smarty and also Dixon Jones, and uh, it was really good. We uh, brainstormed on a number of things for uh, people in the room to uh, say, here's how you could generate some links for your website and links that Google would be likely to pay attention to, um, as opposed to just, you know, let's go everywhere and get as many links as we can. Um, Ann had an interesting uh, um, point where she said, that um, I'll read it from our newsletter here. According to Ann Smarty, context surrounding a link is more important for a reputable from a reputable source rather than the anchor text itself. That's really interesting. I don't know if there's data to support this, but I really do think uh, that there's something to this. So um, if you are getting a link from someone, I mean, if you're controlling the anchor text. There's a good chance that this is a link on a website that Google is just going to ignore. Uh, Google is getting really good at figuring out uh, when a link is truly a recommendation for your website and when it's one that you made. Um, but if you can get that link in the midst of a paragraph or a phrase that is talking on the same subjects that you, um, you're relevant for, then this is a really, really good thing. 
Uh, there was been some more discussion recently on content behind tabs. We've uh, talked about this a lot where uh, Google has said that in the age of mobile first indexing, if you have content that's hidden behind a tab, it really should be treated as uh, the same importance as the rest of the site. Although our tests sort of show that Google doesn't like the content behind tabs, um, we find that often it's hard to surface that content when we're searching for it. Um, and so Brody Clark has done some tests and actually managed to get featured snippets from content that is behind tabs. So if you want more information on this, any of the things I'm talking about here are covered in our newsletter. This is uh, episode 105, and uh, you can find it at uh, mariehaines.com slash newsletter. Uh, and so you can uh, read more, and we've linked to uh, um, a number of things that talk about uh, the stuff I'm talking about here in podcast. Um, a cool tip from Greg Gifford at uh, SearchLove is uh, how to know whether your Google Analytics data is being sampled. Um, most of you probably know this, but uh, I know it was news to uh, several people in the room. Uh, if you have a massive website and you're getting information from Google Analytics, often you'll see that uh, you're not getting 100% of the data exactly like it is, but rather Google samples the data and uh, presents you with you know, a close estimate. So in the top left corner of most Google Analytics screens, there's a check mark. And uh, for most sites, it's going to be green, which means that your data is not sampled. And if you see that check mark is yellow, then you're actually dealing with sampled data and it may not be as accurate as usual. Um, another tip from Greg Gifford that I really, really liked was to look at your about page and ask yourself whether uh, another business could very easily take your about page and use it for theirs. Your goal should be to make it so that your about page screams about how amazing your business is. So if somebody's looking at your about page, um, you know, maybe they want to just find out more information about your company, but often they're trying to figure out, should I buy from this company or from one of their competitors. And so your about page is the place to really, really brag about your EAT, basically. Greg didn't say that. That's my words. Um, brag about why people would trust your business more than the others, uh, about how much experience you've had, about why, uh, where maybe where you've been featured in the, uh, in the press and things like that. Um, your about page can really, really say a lot. Uh, there's something that Gary Ish said in his Q&A that we'll, we'll cover the Q&A uh, soon in this podcast. Um, but one of the things that he said was that your about page for large websites, at least, is likely used to get information for the knowledge graph. Um, and so uh, if you are trying to populate the knowledge graph with information about your business, your about page is very, very important as well um, to get that information um, for, uh, for your website. Uh, quick little local tip. Again, this was from Greg Gifford. Uh, Greg said that you can easily find what secondary categories your competitors are using in Google My Business. Now, it's very important that you make your main category truly your main category uh, because that's the most important category. But if you go to Google Maps, you don't want to do this from organic, but go to maps.google.com or whatever.ca, um, whatever your TLD is for your country. Um, and then find your competitor 
and then look at the source code uh, for the Google Maps listing. And you, should, you can do a control F for what your main category is because the main category is listed on Google Maps. Uh, it's very clear for everybody to see. Um, and then you can uh, control F to find that. And then you'll see a list of other categories that are their subcategories. And you may want to just look at those and see, are those ones that we should consider including as subcategories for us as well? That was a really cool tip. And I want to Thank you, Greg, for all of the great stuff that you gave away at, uh, at Search Love. It was fantastic. Um, let's see what else we can do here. Another tip from Greg as well is uh, if you are um, wanting to rank on Apple Maps, uh, is that even, yeah, I guess so, that's a thing, rank on Apple Maps, then um, you want to be sure that you're getting reviews on the sites that feed the stars for Apple Maps. And so in the United States, that's generally Yelp. Uh, and so you want to be paying attention to that and get reviews on uh, Apple Maps because a lot of people are using them. Um, and so that's a, a really cool tip. A few more tips from Searchlove. Um, Will Critchlow uh, talked about how Distilled did some split testing with the new rel equals UGC. Uh, for those of you who are still confused about that, uh, rel equals UGC is just another way to mark a nofollowed link as nofollowed. Uh, and you're essentially telling Google that this link is generated from user-generated content, um, and our belief is that Google knows, all right, well, we're not going to pay any attention to that link uh, because they can't trust user-generated content. Um, and so Distilled did some split testing uh, implementing UGC, and there was really no change to the websites um, in terms of traffic and rankings uh, for those who implemented it. Um, and this is not... Uh, you know, unexpected, uh, Google has said, and Gary actually said in his Q&A that uh, there really isn't a benefit to webmasters to implement rel equals UGC or rel equals sponsored. It's more to help Google understand the, uh, the web. Um, and so I still don't understand why anybody would do it. Um, I, I know I, I joke that uh, somebody pointed this out just this week that I think we were the very first website to receive a rel equals sponsored link. And uh, we have one paid link and that is on Barry Schwartz's site on Search Engine Roundtable. It sends us good traffic and uh, um, does convert from time to time. And so we pay Gar uh, Barry to be listed on this website. It's a no followed link. So it's not like we're paying him to pass page rank to us. Um, and it's very clearly marked as sponsored. Uh, and so Gary, uh, Bear, well, why do I keep saying Gary Barry? These all these rhyming names. Uh, so Barry marked it as rel equals sponsored. And, um, you know, there's really no benefit to him to do it. Uh, as far as I can see, there's no benefit to us. Um, but somehow it helps Google understand that um, those particular links on that part of his site are sponsored links and they should not be passing link signals uh, to our website. Um, let's see, Luke Carthy gave a really, really great talk at Search Love as well. I really liked how he talked about using Screaming Frog for e-commerce sites. Uh, and he uh, gave a great uh, amount of information about looking at your competitor's sites. One of the things he said is that you can use the custom extraction from Screaming Frog to actually look for specific things on your competitor's pages. So he said you can look at their product pages and, for example, uh, only crawl the page 
pages that say zero results. Um, and so these would be sort of the out of stock products on your competitors pages. And then you can cross reference those against uh, your own data. So you could look at, do you have those pages or those products and um, then pull in data from your products um, such as Google Analytics data. So uh, are any of their out of stock products actually products that are getting clicks, uh, maybe getting links um, on your site? And then you know, hey, we should really be pushing this because our major competitor is all out of this product uh, and maybe we should be uh, trying to sell more of ours. Um, and so yeah, I think you can get some really good competitive information from that. He also recommended looking at log files, uh, you know, instead of just Google Analytics to get this sort of information. So if you're involved in doing SEO for a super competitive uh, e-commerce niche at all, then this is something that I think would really give you a, a competitive advantage. And I would recommend experimenting more uh, with just crawling your competitor sites and seeing uh, where can we get an in? Where can we take advantage of things that are missing on their site? Another really great talk at Search Love was from Stacy McNaught. Um, I really liked how she talked about uh, a website that um, saw some drops with a core update. And what they did was they took information from Google Search Console on keyword rankings. Now we can have all these discussions as to whether those rankings are accurate or not. Um, the point is though, she looked to see which keywords were seeing the biggest drops. And for this particular client, she noticed that their informational queries um, dropped by 64%. They were hit really hard. Uh, but there's transactional queries only dropped 16%. Uh, and this is really interesting. I think part of these core updates, especially if you have an e-commerce site, is Google figuring out when uh, a customer, a potential customer really wants to buy something and then only presenting those sites. Um, so let's say I was, uh, you know, doing some research on a particular product, but I was nowhere near the stage of the funnel where I'm actually getting my credit card out. Um, at this point, I'm just trying to decide, is X better than Y? Um, and so uh, in that case, if Google can figure out that my searches are more um, informational than transactional, then uh, you know I'm less likely to see a transactional uh, site or an e-commerce site. If Google can figure out that, oh, okay, she is really ready to buy. You know, if I do this uh, where to buy product X, then I'm more likely to see rankings, uh, sites ranking that actually sell products. Um, so for this particular client, uh, what Stacy says that they did was they actually, they had a piece of content that used to convert really well. It was a product page and it used to rank in the top three. Um, for their main queries. Uh, and so what they realized was that these uh, queries were now being uh, won by sites that were completely informational in nature. Uh, they didn't sell any products. Um, and so what they did was they made a massive guide to buying this product and made that their main page for uh, the products. They did include um, calls to action, although from what it sounds like, they were greatly toned down so that a user who's looking at the page um, would not feel like, oh, I'm being you know constantly told to buy this product, but rather I could get good information from it. And the cool thing is, she said they did no promotion of this page. They did no link building for this page. Within two months, they were top three again. 
And um, but she did say that it didn't convert as well as before. So I don't know if they came out net positive at the end of that, that, you know, maybe they got more traffic. And and even though they had a lower percentage of conversions, uh, a lower percentage of a smaller number is better than a a higher percentage of zero. (laughs) So uh, something to consider. And we're going to those of you who are waiting for my white paper, I'm writing on medical consensus, which I'll talk about a little bit more in a bit. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at that too, at, uh, transactional information and how to tone down, uh, calls to action. So perhaps Google um, is more likely to trust a a website that's actually selling products as well. I want to spend, and I know we're kind of longer than usual here, but, um, I want to spend some time on Gary Isha's Q and A from PubCon, uh, because this, like I said before, was one of the best Q&As that I've seen. And Gary did a great job of giving us some information that I thought was very helpful um, without uh, being overly sarcastic and um, um, just making fun of webmasters. It was fantastic to see uh, Gary actually giving us helpful stuff. And I have to say that Jennifer Slegg, who did the uh, questions for Q&A, did an absolutely amazing job at um, not only coming up with really good questions, but also keeping Gary on track so that we could answer, uh, he could answer as many questions as possible. Um, We wrote an entire blog post on this. Again, if you go to uh, our blog at mariehaines.com slash blog, or just do a Google search for Q&A with Gary Ish, it's I-L-L-Y-E-S, then you can find uh, this blog post. Um, So I'm going to give you my thoughts on most of these things that he talked about. Um, Let's see here. He said about the Penguin algorithm that it mostly runs on autopilot now. Uh, He did say maybe there had been some minor updates, but for the most part, Penguin just does what it's supposed to do. Now, that does not mean that Google is not updating link algorithms. And something that we've come to believe over the last year plus is that uh, there are many other algorithms that use links or that look at link quality. Uh, And this is our opinion. I don't have 100% um, evidence for this. But uh, there are many other algorithms other than Penguin. Uh, So Penguin, in my opinion, is the algorithm that figures out oh, these are just spammy links. Let's not even look at them. Let's not count them as good links or bad links. Let's not pass signals through them. Let's just ignore these. And I think one of the main reasons why a lot of people are not seeing benefits from using the disavow tool is that you're disavowing links that the Penguin algorithm is just ignoring. Um, There's no harm in disavowing ultra spammy links, provided they truly are ultra spammy, uh, but you're not likely to see an uplift from disavowing just ultra spammy links. Uh, And I've been preaching about this a lot lately, but we've been seeing really, really nice improvements in sites where we've been cutthroat in disavowing links that were specifically made for SEO reasons. Uh, And one of the types of links that we're seeing good benefit from this, uh, from disavowing, is links that are within articles. Um, I'm not saying every link that you get in an article should be disavowed, uh, but many of you are doing widespread link building via article posting in articles that very few people are ever going to read or click on your link. Uh, and so we've been disavowing some of these links and seeing massive gains in traffic. And if you know, I mean, if you've been listening to me for a while, I don't say that often. Um, I usually qualify things with, well, it could be something else. These are sites that we really, really feel strongly that, uh, disavowing these links that were made for SEO purposes are uh, helping these sites see big, big gains. Um, 
And these are sites, they're not massive giant authorities. Like there are sites that, uh, that uh, I wish I could share more information with you. Um, so I've sort of strayed a bit here from the Q&A, but the point is Penguin, that determines whether links are spammy, probably, uh, is running mostly on autopilot. But Gary did say that they have other link, uh, they have other algorithms that are continually being updated. He was talking about core algorithms. Um, we think that August 19th to the 22nd or so, Google uh, released some type of link-related update, not Penguin, uh, but a link algorithm that got better at determining whether a site was making links for the purpose of SEO. So if you're seeing drops in traffic between August 19th and August 22nd, and uh, you have been involved in uh, heavy link building, then this is something you should be paying attention to. Um, and so this leads into the next question that Gary was asked, and that's, should sites investigate in link audits? Um, his answer was, and I quote here, if you know you had a shady SEO company or you were buying links, it's probably best to do. Um, he also said, though, that randomly disavowing spam links is not likely to improve your rankings. So this goes in line with what I just said. Uh, and I would take the words shady SEO company out there because there are some really good SEO companies or at least decent ones that I um, have heard their names many times. They're respected as authorities um, that are still building links in ways that go against Google's guidelines. Uh, and so just because you don't necessarily have to hire some low-cost overseas link building building company in order to have unnatural links. Um, he was also asked about whether it's possible to hurt yourself with Google's disavow tool. And his answer was, it's often, it happens often enough uh, that people hurt themselves with the tool, that if it were me, I'd remove the disavow tool. If you don't know what you're doing, you can shoot yourself in the foot. So uh, this shows us that the disavow tool can be pretty powerful. Um, and again, I mean, we've seen some improvements. Uh, I've heard stories of sites hurting themselves. I only have a couple of examples. Uh, I mean, we've filed probably hundreds of, of disavows. And uh, one site that saw drops uh, was one that had disavowed their entire link profile. Um, another site, we did have one manual action site that I can recall that, uh, we were very, very aggressive with their disavow and did see some slight drops effort after disavowing. Um, but pretty much every other case that we've done, we've either seen an improvement or maybe no change. Uh, so I, you know, I don't want to discourage people from disavowing, um, provided uh, you know what you're doing, uh, but do not be using some automated tool to tell you which links to disavow. You absolutely must be looking at saying, look, um, uh, using your brain in saying, uh, is this a link that was made just for SEO reasons? Uh, would the web spam team consider this an unnatural link, um, uh, a link that we made in order to game Google's system. Uh, and if that's the case, then those are the links that you need to be disavowing. Um, do we need to worry about links that do not show up in Search Console when it comes to auditing links? This has come up for many years now, and Google has always said that the links in Search Console are essentially all you need to get out of a manual action. Um, we heard a great talk by Jim Boykin at PubCon where uh, he was talking about using just the links in Search Console. And they have had many uh, cases where they've gotten out of a manual action just by using those links. 
Historically at MHC, whenever we do any sort of link audit, we always want to look at one link from every single linking domain that we can find. And one of my main reasons for doing this is because when Google gives us example links, they will often give us example links that are from uh, that are not in Search Console. So uh, Search Console gives us the sample of what they think are the most relevant links um, in your uh, in your case, uh, but they're not going to see every single link, and they're not going to include for most sites every single link that is in their link graph, um, and so this concerns me. So. I do think that you can get a manual action lifted uh, by just looking at Search Console links, but I'm not sure that I want to do that all the time um, because these other links that perhaps were not in Search Console are um, potentially still used in Google's algorithms that look at link quality. So uh, we're going to start experimenting with this for sites that are massive. We have some sites that come to us where uh, the cost to actually do a link audit manually is, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it's pretty rare that anybody wants to do that. Um, and so uh, we're going to experiment with using uh, just the Google Search Console links and perhaps doing ongoing, uh, you know, maybe monthly uh, checks of Google Search Console to see which new links pop up for us to also consider disavowing as well. Um, let's see, but I still do recommend wherever possible that you use multiple sources. I'm not out here to, you know, make more money for Ahrefs and Majestic and Moz. Uh, and we, I mean, it makes sense for us to have a subscription to each of those. Um, for the average webmaster, though, who doesn't want to shell out hundreds of dollars each month for link tools, uh, you may be fine to just look at Search Console links. Let's talk about EAT and uh, Gary's answers on EAT. Number one, this got written about by Barry Schwartz. There is no EAT score. Um, this does not mean that Google does not use EAT. Uh, on the contrary, uh, Gary gave some really good information on EAT, which we'll get to in a minute. But there's no one specific score. Uh, and I know we had postulated at some point that perhaps there was a specific score for trust. Um, and that, uh, you know, if trust fell below a certain threshold, uh, that you would have difficulty ranking. I think that's still a possibility. But there's no one score for EAT. Um, what Gary said is that EAT and and YMYL, so your money or your life, are concepts that allow humans to dumb down algorithms. Uh, he says Google has a collection of millions of tiny algorithms that work in unison to spit out a ranking score. Many of those baby algorithms look for signals in pages or content. When you put them together in certain ways, they can be conceptualized as YMYL. It's not like we have a YMYL score, though. Um, and then he went on to say again that multiple algorithms at Google conceptualize EAT. And I think this has been a little bit of a bone of contention amongst uh, some of the well-known SEOs uh, that are, um, you know, speaking and, and writing articles. Uh, there are people who disagree with me on, uh, or they think they disagree with me on EAT. I had a conversation with somebody at PubCon who said, uh, I think we disagree on EAT. And when we talked about it, we didn't. We were just presenting things in different ways. Um, so we have never really, as far as I know, said that there's a score for EAT. Um, but EAT, it, it basically encompasses 
everything that Google wants to look for to determine, is this the best site for us to rank for a YMYL query? Uh, is this a site that is written, uh, the content is produced by somebody who has expertise in this area? Are they known as authorities in this area? Are there any things on this website that cause us not to trust it? Um, these are all components of EAT, of course. And uh, Google has said many times now that this is very, very important. Um, a couple of my talks at PubCon were uh, just giving, uh, you know, piece after piece of evidence in Google documents that talk about the concept of EAT and how important it is. Uh, let's talk about authors. This was another little controversial uh, point. Does Google recognize authors on sites? So we've been saying for a couple of years now that it's very important to have an author bio on all of your posts, unless you're a giant authority, like if you're WebMD and you write something on a medical topic, you may not need to say, this is written by Dr. So-and-so. Um, but for most of us listening to this podcast, you really should be having author bios. Now, Gary Ish was asked whether Google recognizes authors on sites, and he said they probably do for Google Scholar and maybe even Google News, which is interesting, um, but they're not likely, uh, he actually didn't go on the but uh, after this is just my thoughts. He, he kind of said, well, we probably do for these, uh, and then he went and talked about entities. Um, I think it's unlikely that Google has, oh, I don't even know if this is unlikely, it's possible that Google has um, the knowledge graph is big enough uh, from what they can see based not what we can see on knowledge graph search using their API. Um, they may have each of us mapped out as entities uh, that we just don't know about. Um, and I know this is getting kind of complicated, but my point is if, if, if one of my team writes an article for my website and we say this article was written by so-and-so and they write uh, you know, for other websites, um, I think Google can gather entity information, even though that person is not, you know, at this point, a well-known authority in uh, in SEO. They probably can gather information about that author and whatnot. Um, but we don't know for sure whether Google's doing that. So um, something that Danny Sullivan uh, said recently, and I don't have the exact quote, is that Google um, wants to understand whether content is expert written. And I think they could use natural language processing to determine, oh, you know, this medical content uh, is written using terms that doctors understand. Um, and uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, so complicated that humans don't, <laughs> humans, <laughs> like doctors aren't humans, that uh, uh, non-doctors uh, would understand. But I think they could probably determine whether the content is accurate. Um, and in fact, uh, we'll talk a little bit about how Google does that in just a minute. So should we still have author bios? Um, whether or not Google is looking at uh, who your authors are, you absolutely should have author bios. Author bios, John Mueller has said, are a good way to determine trust or to establish trust from users. If I'm reading your content and I see, oh, this content is written by so-and-so who's been uh, in this industry for 10 years and she's seen all sorts of problems that I, wanted, I, I would be dealing with and she's won awards in this area, that's something you want your readers to find. You want your readers to trust your content. Um, is Google specifically looking at, oh, you... Um, you, your content is uh, written by so-and-so and so-and-so -so is not known as an expert in this area? I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to say. Uh, but we should still be using author bios. Um, Gary gave a really, really interesting uh, talk or discussion about 
how he uses the quality raters. This is really cool. Um, so Gary, I actually didn't know, I don't think that Gary write, writes code. And so Gary writes a lot of the code uh, that goes into some of Google's algorithms. And when he has some code that he wants to implement into the algorithms, he said that what he does is he um, presents the quality raters with two different sets of queries. Uh, and potentially query results. Uh, and so basically what they're looking at is here, if we did this search, here's what the current algorithm would return to a user. And here's what the new algorithm with Gary's code implemented would return to a user. And um, when that happens, uh, then the quality raters are told to assess uh, which results are better. And they base their results not on their own personal beliefs and, and uh, things like that, but based on the information that's in the quality raters guidelines. Um, and so uh, it goes to, it doesn't necessarily go to every single quality rater. It goes to a statistic, statistically significant sample of quality raters. And um, if he gets information back, that's uh, the majority of the quality raters say, yeah, the results are better uh, without um, with your new code in it. Uh, and then they weigh that against the, um, the cost of doing this. I, I was reading about an experiment uh, where they were looking, they showed the quality raters whether adding certain images in the SERPs made uh, the SERPs better. And um, they had to weigh that against the cost of increased page load time. Um, so if Gary gets the results back that say, yeah, the results are better with your code in it, and it makes sense to do that, uh, then that will go live into the algorithm, or it may go through some live testing uh, as well, too, before it goes into the algorithm. Um, so that was an interesting look into how uh, Gary uses the, the quality raters uh, for Google. Um, does Google look for a site's about page or contact page? I think I talked about this earlier. Uh, Gary said they're likely used by the knowledge graph, especially for larger entities. Um, let's see, we've been going for a long time here, but we're almost done. And I want to keep going because this was just such great information. I don't want to put it off to, uh, to next week. Um, does crawling increase prior to an update? Gary gave the SEO answer that says it depends. He says, we have millions of baby algorithms and they might trigger something that increases crawl rate on certain sites, but it's not a blanket thing. We've had people in the past that have said, uh, I remember when Pando was uh, going rampant, and I believe Alan Blayweiss uh, posted some stuff showing that uh, a good number of his clients saw increased crawling before they were either hit or benefited from Panda. And um, we didn't see the same thing in sites that we looked at. And it's not to say that uh, Alan was wrong or that we were wrong. Um, it just may be that Google was looking for certain things. So... If all of a sudden you see a spike in crawling from Google, it, it may be that your site is getting assessed in terms of quality. It could just be something else. I, I think it's too variable for us to um, put too much stock in that. This was a really interesting question. Does Google use consensus for things like baby oils cures cancer? Um, so we have been talking a lot about this idea of scientific consensus and whether Google measures that in websites. And I have a whole blog post uh, that I've written on, you know, our thoughts on how Google could do that. Um, and it really doesn't matter how they do it. The question is whether they do it. Uh, and so Gary said he actually doesn't want to give us too much information in this area. Uh, I 
actually had a private conversation with Gary after his Q&A uh, where I was asking him about particular alternative medicine clients that um, were having trouble ranking, even though parts of their site were really, really good. Uh, and then other parts of their site were talking about alternative theories that maybe aren't in line with consensus. Um, and Gary shared with me that one of the reasons he doesn't want to give too much information in this area is because he doesn't want to help websites that are potentially providing people with false information. Um, he shared with me that he has a family member that passed away from cancer and that there was uh, so much bad advice online when uh, they were looking for information on this cancer. And uh, so Google really, I believe, has a strong mandate to make it so that sites that talk about alternative treatments that aren't thoroughly recognized by mainstream doctors as true uh, are going to have trouble ranking, um, especially, you know, in the area of medicine. I think this will eventually translate to other areas as well. But, um, but here's what Gary said in the public Q&A. Um, he said, some of our algorithms, oh, he says, this is an area where I specifically don't want to give too much information. Some of our algorithms use entities. Entities translate to terms. Certain algos can use medical terms. Anything from Project OWL, I'll just uh, say here, Project OWL is um, a couple of years ago, actually probably more than that now, uh, it was Google's initiative to start fighting fake news on the web. So he said, anything from Project OWL can rely on that. For me, medical terms are close to my heart. Those who provide medical information and they are highly authoritative, they know how to do it. Uh, and he said something after that that was mumbled and unfortunately I didn't catch it. Um, so, gosh, what do we say here? Um, you know, the question is, how does Google uh, determine whether your content is accurate or not? Let's, let's actually move to that. Um, is content accuracy a ranking factor? Because this ties into this medical consensus thing. Uh, if you are writing that baby oil cures cancer and, you know, the vast majority of the medical community is not on board with you, then is that, you know, are you actually writing accurate information? So uh, when Gary was asked if content accuracy is a ranking factor, he said for YMYL sites, yes. He says, we go to great lengths to surface reputable and trustworthy sources. So yes. Um, and so this brought up a bunch of debate online because Danny Sullivan had just recently tweeted that Google can't measure the accuracy of content. Um, and then Danny uh, was, you know, asked, I think Barry Schwartz wrote about this and Danny came back and said, um, uh, he says, no, no, we can't tell if content is accurate. But again, signals, we look for things that we believe correspond to accuracy. In that regard, damn right, having accurate content is a ranking factor. So we've just had two um, Google employees tell us that, yes, having accurate content is a ranking factor. And Danny's next tweets said, well, you know, if you want us to give you some guidelines on what it is that you can do to uh, show that your content is accurate. Um, and then he said, maybe we should give it a name like EAT. Uh, and so this is all connected to EAT. Um, again, you know, I, I don't think Google, um, it's Google's job to determine whether your content is truly 100% accurate. I had a conversation on Twitter with somebody just this morning who was saying, well, if Google was around in the time of Galileo, then Google would have buried all of Galileo's thinking, and that's not right. 
Well, how is Google to know that uh, Galileo is, his theory was going to end up, his theories were going to end up being uh, proven right? They know that when the experts of the day start uh, agreeing with him. And that's, I think, what is happening now. So, um, you know, we've, I, I could talk for another couple of hours about uh, content accuracy. Um, and uh, I don't think that I, I want to go into that because we're almost at an hour at this point now, anyhow. Um, but I think the take home point here is that we've had two Google employees say that, yes, having accurate content is a ranking factor. One of the things we're working on now is, is how to go through your content and determine uh, what potentially could be seen as inaccurate by Google and how we could change that uh, so that Google no longer thinks that we have inaccurate content. I think this is key for sites that have been hit with uh, core updates recently. Um, is having too many ads a ranking factor? Gary said, I will go with yes. The page layout algorithm is still alive and working. Um, I think we're going to end it there. I was going to do some uh, Q&A from podcast and... I'm going to leave those, uh, put them in the next episode, uh, just as we are quite a bit longer than we usually are. Um, I want to thank you to all of you who actually reached out to me to say, where's your podcast? I haven't heard it for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I apologize that I haven't been able to do it. Normally when I'm on the road, I actually do do a podcast episode. Uh, I think in the last two weeks, I gave six different talks, uh, which all involved extensive prep. And so uh, for the next little bit, you're probably not going to see me uh, on the speaker circuit um, at least till March I think is my next uh, my next talk um, I'm going to be focusing on actually analyzing what we think Google is doing uh, helping our own clients as well um, and of course playing Fortnite uh, I won two solo games this week which was a big thing for me um, if you're thinking about playing Fortnite now's the time to get into it because they've really really implemented the skill based matchmaking uh, so you're not completely out of your depth when you're playing, but uh, my username is ha. I can't remember how many A's are in it, but if you get killed by somebody just with that name, just know I'm actually at home going ha. My kids and I have, uh, we have competitions to see who can do the best maniacal laugh, and uh, I usually win, but hey, you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll stop now because obviously I'm very tired after doing this full episode. Thank you again for listening, and uh, I look forward to uh, talking to you again next week and wish you the best of luck with your rankings. Mm-hmm.